If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 4. We're going to be camping out there the, the whole time. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then that is yours to take home with you. Um, and so up until this point where we are in the book of Acts in our series called The Acts of the Holy Spirit, it's been pretty simple to see that everything that has transpired up until this point is going pretty, pretty well for the early church. Everything is really going smoothly without any kind of blips on the road. And so they're growing in numbers. A church that was 120, some estimate over 20,000, right? A church that was um, just starting and, and trying to figure out who Jesus was is, is growing in faith. They're growing in influence to their community. They're growing truer in their community. And so all these things are happening after the infilling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it's just, it seems like it's one big, easy, smooth sailing party. And so when we look at that, sometimes we, we like to play games with our mind and insert ourselves in that and say, well, if I was just there when people were just walking down the line and healing people and people were just walking down high-fiving people and people were getting saved, then my faith would be costly. My faith would be something that I would give everything for because it would be easy because everyone would be there doing the same thing and there would be this, this extreme motivation. And so the danger with that is that you really can't tell you're a Christian when life is okay. Okay, and so up until this point and where we are in Acts 4 right now, everything's okay and that's fine. But you can't really test your Christianity when things are okay. And so before we get in, I'm just going to say this. True Christians serve God for nothing. And when suffering comes, we get to see whether or not we're in this game serving God to serve ourselves or whether we're here as Christians serving God for nothing because we get him and that's it. And so the significance of chapter 4, where we're going to be in today, is that it's the first real litmus test of their faith. It's the first real trial that they experience. It's the first woe moment. And so we get to see, are they just hopping on the bandwagon of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Are they just doing it because the 20,000 other people are doing it? Or is this costly, authentic Christianity? So the Christianity that takes place early is dangerous and scary because the results and benefits that come from it can just be taken without any cost. And we could look and we say, oh, that's good, oh, that's good, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. But there's no cost. And it's easy to want other people's happiness and tag along for the ride, guys. It's so easy to do that. There's so many people that come to church every week that do that every single week and nothing changes. It's easy to see your parents have joy as a kid for our youngins out there. It's easy to see your parents have joy, grow up in the faith and want that and come to church and participate that and then once you leave and something, bi something bad happens, it's all gone. And that's why suffering is a true test of our faith because it introduces the element of cost. It introduces an element that makes us say, maybe my interests are in the backseat. Maybe this is about something greater. And so if you turn your Bibles to Acts 4, starting in 23, read with me. It says, And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And so starting in chapter 4, the people of God realize that something bad is about to happen. There's, there's potential that the gospel is, is being sort of governed by this authority. There's a potential for death. There's the potential for increased persecution. And so Peter and John had just been arrested after the healing of the lame beggar. They went and were arrested and they were brought to the council because they were causing a stir in the community. And they basically said, listen, we're not going to charge you. Everything's fine. There's just one condition. Just never preach the gospel again, okay? Just those 5,000 people that just got saved, it's, it's fine. Just, just never preach it again, okay? Because we know that it's something that's real, but we're kind of uncomfortable with it. So never, never preach it again. And at this point, they're kind of happy that they're not in prison, right? Who wouldn't? But at the same time, when they come back to their friends, when they come back to the community, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, the next time I get arrested, it may be my last. The next time I get arrested, I may be in there for a while. The next time I get arrested, it could affect my entire church community. And so look how they respond in verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they go into a prayer, and we're going to touch on that a little later. But they pray, right? The first thing they come back and do is they, they get with their friends, the people that they're close with, and they pray. And so this was the one moment in their history where they could have been stopped and said, God, this is so unfair. Like, 5,000 people just got added. People are rallying for us. We're getting arrested and they're still believing in us. This is a crazy point and all these good things are happening. They weren't doing anything wrong. Why, God, now do we get arrested? Why, God, now do we get this opposition? Why, God, now do we get this? They don't do any of that. They come back and they say, listen, we're out. It's okay. There's potential for worse things, but guess what? Let's pray, okay? We got to do that. We got to cover that. Let's pray. And so what do they pray? Flip down to verse 29. It says, and now look. And now look, Lord, look to their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so notice what they don't pray for. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for a change in their circumstances. They don't pray for their enemies to be struck down. Three things I know I would be praying. And so essentially they're saying, God, all of those things that we could be praying right now, none of those things, just give us the courage and continue to change people's lives through us. That's it. That's all we want. Just give us courage and continue to change people's lives through us. And they had a clear opportunity to lift their voices for the one time that you would have said, it's okay, and say, hey God, it's all about me. I'm just, I'm just gonna ask you to give me what I want. And what they're showing very early in this passage is that their Christianity was real and they were all about God's needs for them and not so much about what they got out of the picture. So everything got real. 
right? This was a reality check. And so in our society, we say, well, I used to be a Christian, but then, um, you know, I, I went to college and uh, I got some other thoughts in my head and then, you know, I just didn't want to uh, be a Christian anymore. Or uh, I got a Christian and then my parents got divorced and that was really tough on me and they used to be Christians too, but it was really tough on them and now we're just not walking in the faith. And so we live in a society, we live in a Christian culture where it's possible to have hand-me-down relationships with God. It's possible, guys, that you can live off the experiences of other people who know God without really knowing God yourself. And as soon as some sacrifice or cost comes into play, it's easy to just bail. And we call that used to be, that we call that us used to being Christians, right? I used to be this. You never were. <laughs> you never were. And so the community in Acts was marked with this consistency, a continued focus on what really mattered in good times and in trial. And they knew God for themselves. They knew him for themselves. They didn't just know he had stuff that they could get. They knew him for himself. And they, were, they weren't hopping on this, like, Pentecost bandwagon, right? <laughs> they weren't just, you know, sign me up. But how do we know that they knew God? It's easy for someone to say that. How do we know that they knew my answer is this. People who know God answer him, they don't ask. People who know God answer him, they don't ask. Eugene Peterson quotes in, his, um, in one of his books, prayer has its origin in the movement of God towards us. And in his book, Answering God, he develops the idea that prayer is not simply talking to God, but answering him. And so God's the initiator. He gave us his word he gave us his law. He gave us his son. He oriented everything. He pursued us in salvation. He gave us everything. And so prayer is primarily our response to what he has already done. And truly knowing God is answering him in a way that's obvious that we've been there before. It's obvious that we're familiar with what he's done. And it's not primarily a prayer for our needs. It's not primarily asking God for stuff. And so after I'm done preaching, if someone grabs me and says, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about what you just said. I have some thoughts. I have some things to go over. And then they proceed for 30 minutes just to go, me, 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 And they never talk about anything that I said. That would be really weird, right? Because that's why we're talking right now, because you wanted to talk about what I just said. And so that's kind of how it is when, when we have a full range of the word in front of us and we, when we go to God and we say, God, listen, I just want to talk to you. Um, just forget all the promises you made in your word, but hey, uh, me, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme. But that's often what our prayers look like. It's not what theirs did. <clears throat> and so when we pray knowing that we've been given everything through Christ and we simply ask God, give me health, protect me, do all these things, he's just up there saying, pray like you know what I've done. Pray like you've been here before. Pray like you've been in my presence before. Because I promise you things in my word. And so starting in verse 25, let's look how they answer God. Actually, verse 24, sorry. And it says, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, our servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And so notice what they do here again, right? They're talking to God about who he is and are essentially reading their own Bible back to him. Instead of saying, hey, God, we're afraid. This isn't going too well. We got some bad stuff on our horizon. Give us, give us peace. I'm restless. Stop my anxiety. They isolate an aspect of God's character, and they talk truth back to God. And so they're scared. Some of them might die. What do they do? Flip to Psalm 2. This is an excerpt right from Psalm 2. A psalm about how when the nations rage and the people are, are trying to gain control, and they're trying to usurp God, God says, hey, I'm in control of all of it. I have, a, I have in control of all of this. And so af- after that, re- after reading his, his word back to him, they're basically saying, God, you created everything. God, through all the craziness of the Old Testament, you fulfilled everything you promised. Kings were gathered against you. You struck them down. Nations plotted their rebellion. Herod, Pontius Pilate, all of these things, all these bad things that led you to the cross, they didn't surprise you. You were ready. You were right there waiting because you were all in control. And through answering God with what he had already done and through speaking the word back to him, their hearts were healed. They didn't have to do this divine waiting game where it was like, all right, God, here you go. All right, I'm just going to wait. You realize what that's saying about God? That's saying that God is, is somehow in that waiting game, not concerned with what's going on with you. That somehow he's waiting and flipping to the file list and being like, oh, what's with that? Oh, oh, Eric, okay. I forgot about that one. There's no waiting game, guys. When we pray like what, when we pray like we know that he's already done these things, right, the healing comes right away. We're talking, we're talking out loud to ourselves and then we start convincing ourselves, oh yeah, yeah, he is sovereign. Yeah, we, we are going to be okay. And so because they knew God, they were in close proximity with him. And what happens is where when, and when we're in close proximity with our Savior in our prayer closet, we want to be close, in close proximity with others in our community. And we want others to experience that same proximity. Do you know God? I want you to know God. I know God. And so what happens is they, their community explodes And read with me in verse uh, 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were all of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own. But he had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And And a great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. That's crazy. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so if you truly know God and you're a Christian for no other benefit than God, then you have absolutely nothing to hold on to. There's nothing that, that 
in this world, that, that matters. It means that if everything gets stripped away and all you have left is Jesus, that's okay. And if everything is, that you have is going well and you still have Jesus, then everything is okay. Either way, it doesn't matter to you, all the extra stuff. And so these Christians, because they knew God in the way that they did, had absolutely nothing to hold on to. And their close proximity to God made them long for close proximity with his people. And they had this deep awareness of need among them. They had this extreme awareness of where people were at in their need. And so in their time of greatest sacrifice, in their time of greatest cost, they responded with more sacrifice. They didn't run from the sacrifice. They said, we're going to beat sacrifice with sacrifice. They had nothing to hold on to. It was all God's, and they were laser-focused on him. Amen. And so this passage is so important because of where it falls in the storyline, because in Acts 2.42, right, after Pentecost, we see that Luke says this same exact thing. People were in common, needs were met, people were doing crazy stuff like selling things, people were bringing meals to each other. And then two chapters later, in 4.32-44, through he says the same thing. But Pentecost... It's like when Hurricane Sandy hit. Everyone was motivated to do the community work of the people because there was disaster that stroke. All right? Pentecost wasn't a disaster, but it was, it was an experience like no other. Same thing with Sandy. And so we rushed to people. I mean, we had like 20 people in our house cooking meals, no one taking showers, people just smelling a B.O. We're just all around each other doing work, running people chargers. I mean, crazy stuff, like people selling houses in this passage, but still, I mean, like, we weren't doing that, but it was, it was insane that the, the outreach that happened. Three weeks? Maybe a month? I mean, talk to Barry. I mean, we share an office with the guy, and there's still thousands of people out of a house. Are we aware of that? I wasn't when he was talking to me. But we were for a month. Maybe some a little bit more. Because everyone was doing it. Everyone was on board with the same, same thing. Everyone was helping. And so when Luke mentions it at first, you're like, oh yeah, well they're selling houses and they're doing all these things. It's expected. Pentecost just happened. The Holy Spirit just fell. They're going crazy. It's just one big long line of high fives and everyone's getting healed. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's an insanely awesome period in Scripture. And it's not bad but you just can't tell if it's real at that point. You can't tell if that's real. And so when the, when the adrenaline fades away and everything comes back to reality, this is for, and guess what? They're still there. They're still there, sacrificing. And so what that says is that two, when he mentions it in Acts 2, that it was just as real as it is now. It's just as real as it is now. And so here's the crazy thing. That when the persecution was gone, and everything was looming in their future, they proved that this was just normal Christianity. They proved that their faith in chapter 2 was normal. They proved that the faith that they took in chapter 4 to continue to sacrifice was just normal. And it wasn't just a few super Saiyans in the, in the church, right? Right? who are just going above and beyond the call of God's word, and they're like, 
whoa, that's the guy that like does weird stuff like fasting and ugh, I mean, that's not me. I mean, I can only dream of being that guy. It was everyone. It was everyone. And so why is it when something like Hurricane Sandy happens, we're so quick to respond, and then when it fades away, we just forget, and it becomes something that we dream about, something that's extraordinary, when to them, it was just ordinary. And so the modern church's extraordinary was often their normal. And so maybe it's because our idea of Christianity doesn't involve the cost. Maybe we as Christians are in it for us instead of for Jesus. Just putting it out there. And so I wanna, what I want to close with in, in verse 31, I want to focus on a word here. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Focus on that word. And they were all filled with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that some crazy stuff happens when humans or creation gets involved with God. Because we're sinful and we, we don't know his, his holiness and, and we don't, um, because, because of the fall and we kind of messed it up. We can't, we can't be in that community with him. Right in the Old Testament. You saw that that was just a normative thing. God would come down, people would just like melt. Mountains would just like explode. Um, they were sh- people were shaken in his presence. We see multiple accounts. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai was wrapped in fire and the whole earth shook greatly. Psalm 68, the earth shook and the heavens dropped at the presence of God. That's why the people surrounding the mountain in Exodus 19, when, when, when Moses is getting the law, he's like, oh, no, no, don't touch the mountain. You're just going to straight up drop dead. Because the glory exuding from it is something that you can't even be in the presence of because you're going you're gonna to straight up die. Second Samuel 6, Ark of the Covenant falls, oh, dead. Just completely dead. Awestruck, shaken in the presence of God. And there was an endless chasm between sinful man and a holy God that could not be bridged with anything other than God himself. And so, why is it that in this passage, when the Holy Spirit falls on the place that they're meeting, the very Holy Spirit that we just talked about, the God that is sinless and perfect, came to dwell in their hearts, and they seemed unshakable. And they seemed driven to boldness. Why? Because those weren't the only earthquakes that happened in the Bible. There's one in Matthew 27. There's one in Matthew 28. Matthew 27 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. Earthquake happened, just like like where the apostles were. And the rocks were split. Guys, but this time, man did not crumble in the presence of the Father. But God's wrath against your sin left Jesus completely shaken so that you could be unshakable. He took your sin. He took your guilt. He bridged the chasm that was that Old Testament. He bridged that. 
so that now he tore the veil and that you could be in community with him. The same earthquake that happened in that little meeting room happened at the cross. But that wasn't it. Three days later, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And not only was our Savior dead and paying for our guilt and shame, but he shook off the shackles of your of death. And he shook free from the grave and he beat death by rising again and he made you eternally unshakable in Christ. And so now when the Holy Spirit falls and we, we see him in our prayer closets and we see him in our community and we see him in our midst, we can be completely unshaken knowing that the power of God lives in us and he's calling us to something that is the reward. It's it. It's him and that's it. And so we could be free to sacrifice. We could be free to give everything that we have to each other to God, to ourselves, because he is alone the reward. And everything else is just going to fade away. And so church, visitors, people who are struggling with the idea of Christianity, this is what Christianity looks like. This is what normal Christianity looks like. Anything else is just a lie that we've invented. And so guys, pray like you know what God has already done. Love so deeply that you're aware of the needs of your community. Give so generously that you have nothing to hold on to. And look forward to sacrifice because it is there that you find true, normal Christianity. It's there you find out whether or not your faith is real. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, God, for your word. God, we thank you so much, God, for a church in history, God, that you had one of your servants, Luke, write so much about, God, so that we could learn so much about how to be a church in the 21st century. God, we we thank you that your word convicts you. We thank you that your word leads us to places, God, maybe we don't want to go. We pray that in this place now, at the hearing of your word, that we would be not only convicted, but led to repentance. God, we know that your kindness leads us to that place of repentance. We pray that your gospel would lead our church to a place of repentance. God, a place that we can be confident knowing that we have a God who's in control, knowing that we have a God who's been there, and we pray that we would interact and answer you like we know that. God, we love you, and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.